Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Raplick and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the biggest issues that is, is being confronted by people in certain parts of our community is how people in our defence forces currently serving and former are being treated by the system. Now, there is a Royal Commission that's being called, but it may not necessarily delve into what um, are the systemic issues in the defence area itself. The Royal Commission deals with the uh, inquiring into uh, veteran suicides, but it doesn't delve into the more broader institutional aspects of defence. Now, someone who knows more about it than I do is Dr. Kay um, Danes, who's looked at this area extensively, uh, has a experience in a defence family, and will be able to enlighten us on what needs to be done, what gaps need to be filled, and what are the core issues that need that, that people need to think about when they're reflecting on the impact of service in defence on individual soldiers and their families. Kay, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's good to be on your show. Oh, that, and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Now, um, there are a lot of people who aren't a part of the defence establishment, okay? Mm. They watch the media, they look at the media, and they turn around and sort of ponder what... Um, about what's going on and what may be, may be happening. Uh, I've seen a submission you put to a symposium uh, earlier on this year, which is a detailed piece of work, uh, and that has a lot of analysis with respect to the culture of uh, what goes on in defence. How would you, you know, describe what's been happening uh, in the cultural space in the in the Department of Defence, uh, to your knowledge? Well, as you know, there are a lot of issues to unpack, and I I think the the main discussion when they when they when the veteran community um, engage in this whole conversation of Royal Commission, they need to delve back into defence and and look at the root cause of or causes. Um, that drive defence suicide risk. Um, and we can't just say that it's related to combat. Uh, that seems to be the throwaway line that, that often gets thrown out there is that, oh, what they've seen in Afghanistan and it's given them PTSD and they're broken and they're transitioning out and, and you know, everybody focuses on the mental health aspect. And certainly there are a lot of veterans that have taken their life um, as a result of post-traumatic stress. But there's a deeper issue at play. And a lot of soldiers have come to me and said, look, we'd love to speak out, but we're bound by, you know, policy and regulation but this is the issue from our perspective. And so I, I've been trying to, without saying I'm speaking for every single defence member that's ever served or still serving, um, I've tried to raise awareness about some of the issues that they've spoken to me about. And a lot of that stems from 
defective administration. Defective administration in service. So breaking it down so everyone can understand it is quite simply when a member of Defence Force has a, an incident in the workplace and that incident can be related to any number of things as any workplace in any organisation, um, you know, you name it. So they, they go to the, their boss and they raise a complaint and then that complaint gets escalated. And usually what's happening happening in service now is that um, that complaint then gets put under a policy which is called the Defence Inquiry Regulations. Once it goes under that policy, um, some very strange things happen, Tom, and it becomes very difficult for the member then to navigate their way through that which happens. Okay, um, is this one of those policies, it's a bit like a long-term car park at the airport, the car gets parked and doesn't go out? Pretty much, pretty much. The car gets parked, uh, well, the member, the member goes through varying hoops and jumps over obstacles and often finds themselves in a giant head spin. And they get into this cycle where they, they just like being on a merry-go-round, they can't get off. Because once you start down this policy route for justice, and that's what they're, they're endeavouring to do, is to utilise the, the avenues that are available to them through defence in order to find a resolution for their complaint. And so the defence member um, understands that there's certain actions that they have to take, and we say exhaust the chain of command. So go through all the steps. And they do this with the idea that they will get justice because they, they live in an environment where they're constantly told that fighting for justice is an honourable thing to do. And that's why we are committing them to fight for the justice of other people. But they get into this defence inquiry um, regulations and then they, they find that the odds are stacked against them. And I think you've said previously that, you know, that they, they will never win against the system because the system is is designed to win and designed to make the defence member fail. So in that sense, it's a bit like having a, 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 the, the deck loaded in favour of the Defence Department rather than giving the individual the feeling that there is a, a structure, albeit one that is that have, um, it exists to deploy people to do things that um, need to be done in defence of the country or defence of allies. And that structure still has the capacity to be compassionate. I've had a look at a list in a, pa in a, in a paper you've, you've put together. Um, I note there are 40 bullet points in that paper. <laughs> I also note that it, it, it does say that the list is not exhaustive. But anyone reading that list of 40 bullet points that is not exhaustive can quickly come to the conclusion that, you know, if by the end of 
if by the end of 40 bullet points um, you don't feel a semblance of hopelessness, you're really not reading that list of 40 bullet points properly, are you? No, Tom, and I've tried to articulate those 40 bullet points into something quite simple to the defence chiefs and, and to tell them, look, this is not a criticism. This is coming from a place where um, I have a great, as you know, I have a great love of defence. Uh, I love our defence force. I think the, the men and women that serve in it are incredibly brave people brave in the sense that they're brave in combat, brave in peacekeeping, brave in training, and brave in just an every day of their life, putting on the uniform and representing those of us who don't put on the uniform. They walk a very hard path, but they choose to do it. And they, they do it at great sacrifice to themselves and to their families. And they do not deserve to be ill-treated in the workplace. And I have seen time and time again too much of that ill-treatment over seemingly quite simple workplace matters where you would think that someone could sit down with the human resources manager, in, in their case, the soldier career manager, or officer career manager, and talk through the issues and find resolutions. But unfortunately, it's not the case. And so what happens is they're seldom able to, to defend themselves and get justice for themselves. And so they face all these inequities and, and, the, and the list of inequities. I mean, you've read the paper, you know, everything from the lack of transparency to exclusion of evidence from allowing witnesses to, um, you know, give evidence on hearsay without any rules of that we would expect them to follow. Um, witness testimony, providing false witness testimony. I've in fact seen um, one, one senior warrant officer I know, he actually gave oral evidence and a transcript of that was provided and, and the two didn't match because the defence inquiry officers had tampered with that evidence. So it, it, we're basically saying that even someone uh, who was given verbal evidence and inquiry ends up being verbaled. Yeah. And there's a lot of intimidation but, uh, that goes on. Has there been much in the way of discussion in the public domain about this very issue? No. And, and in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you, Tom, that you would have to be one of the bravest people to have this conversation um, because it's not a conversation that's easy to have. And there, there are a lot of people that are intimidated by having this very conversation. Why? Because people are afraid. The defence members themselves are told you are not to speak. Even when there is a, a serious injustice done against you, you are not to speak publicly about that. And once they put it under the Defence Inquiries Regulation, 
um, you then bec become bound, legally bound by that. And if you breach that, that, um, that policy stipulation, then you can be charged. You know, you, you can't even talk about these things outside. You, I, I know of a case currently where um, someone has taken their complaint to a civilian court um, because the complaint, the complaint has allowed witnesses to just tell lies in a defence inquiry. They're protected under the Inquiry Act, they think, and then they think, well, they've gotten away with it. And so people, you know, people then try and take them to court. Usually the reason why they don't fully go through that whole process is because of the money. You know, it's quite expensive to go through this whole process of getting justice through the legal system. But, um, you know, this whole um, inability, David McBride is probably one of the best examples. Um, David McBride is involved in, um, he's, he saw information come across his desk that warranted um, speculation and he raised the matter internally in defence and said, look, I believe I've seen some questionable acts done by service members. They, they shut him down. He then tried to take that information to the Australian Federal Police. They shut him down. They said, you can't talk about this. This is secret stuff, you know, and he, he blew the whistle on it. And now look at him. He's, he's going through the, the, the courts and with a, a threat of a 60-year sentence over his head because he dared to tell that there was something untoward going on inside defence. And this is what they do. This is, this is why defence puts everything now under the defence inquiry. So if you have something happen on a training, a training event and, and something, you know, you raise a complaint against someone involved in that training, you can never talk about it. You can never tell anyone outside. You can't even tell a magistrate or a, or a justice because it's secret now. And we're not talking secrets as in, you know, it's, it's going to end the world sort of stuff. This is talking about an institutional abuse. And it's the same sort of thing that happened with the Catholic Church, for, for example, where they were, you know, hiding all the instances of abuse. The same thing is happening in defence. And it's driving people to suicide risk and reputational harm. So you've got, as I say, you've got two different types of people caught up in this. They're either suicidal or they're homicidal. Either way, they're living in a pressure cooker. And what they need is someone who is courageous enough in the media to dig deeply into what is happening with these defence inquiries and these defence inquiry officers who are relying on findings and evidence that would never, ever stand up in a court of law. It's, it's just incredible, Tom. You know, um, what they need is, is for the rules of evidence to form 
the basis of defence inquiries. They need to provide, when they call on witness testimony, for instance, they need to make sure that the witness testimony is given under affirmational oath. Mm -hmm. You know, the defence inquiry officers need to be trained. Currently, you can do all that's required of them to do is an optional four-day training course in how to construct a report. So they're not trained investigators. And in actual fact, you know, the witnesses, they're not even required to, to they, they can just make things up, and they do. I've got one case where um, in, in one senior officer's career, career selection, so this, this senior officer was selected for a position, a quite senior position, and one of his competitors, one of his peers, decided that he would tell the career panel that this, this person misappropriated seven to $10 million from the SAS Resources Trust. And, and was so convincing that after, after the career panel had met, that soldier went from being the number one pick of the bunch for promotion to then being deemed as not even fit for service in the Australian Defence Force. Hold on a second. Did they find any evidence uh, of misappropriation? No. How the hell did that stack up? Because that person told the panel that the 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 officer had uh, the the matters had been covered over because SAS didn't want to risk a scandal, so they allowed the officer to oh, take okay. seven to ten million dollars from the SAS trust. So this is this is the this is the old method of conspiracy theory self seething, which is. Oh, um, it, it's true because we know the the military is good at hiding stuff, and people must have hidden this seriously. Yeah, they 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 think that you know, and this buys into this whole conversation. You know, SAS Special Air Service Regiment. They they don't usually go around allowing people to commit crimes and then cover it up. Yeah, they don't do that. And so this, this um, particular person, and we found out all this information in a freedom of information request. The defence inquiry regulations state that in those circumstances, that matter should have been reported to the lawful authorities. If people in defence suspected that a soldier or an officer committed a crime, but and the inquiry must conclude and the matter be handed over to the lawful authorities for investigation. So that there was some wasn't. so there was someone completely bypassed for promotion on the basis of a lie. Yeah. And they and what's worse, Tom, is that that person was never ever told so that they could defend themselves. And I've seen the details of the records. That that person had impeccable employment history, hence why they were selected for the number one position 
at that time, which would have seen them be quite prominent in service in the special forces. And they were completely um, blindsided by, by this member, a fellow member in their peer in the special forces. But, they, but that information was not disclosed to them until eventually they submitted a, a freedom of information request to seek to know why they were told you're no longer fit for service. And that's when all the information came out. Now, you, you would think that that person would be able to sue that soldier, that senior ranking officer for defamation. But because it's put under the Defence Inquiry Act, they haven't got a leg to stand on. So it, because, <laughs> it's, because it's in a special little box called a Defence Inquiry, a person against whom an unfounded allegation has been made is unable to avail themselves of civil remedy. Exactly. Because the Defence Inquiry regulations state that you are not to talk about these things outside of the Defence Inquiry. You know, we live in a democracy. We have soldiers give their lives for freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, human rights. But that freedom isn't necessarily available to them in, in, within, the, uh, within the ecosystem they inhabit in defence. Um, it sounds to me, uh, Kay, that we'll need to have another, another somewhat longer chat uh, another another point in time because this this appears to be a rabbit hole that's never ending. Mm -hmm. In terms of issues, what are the most? What would you like to see happen uh, in the context of uh, the the Royal Commission? You've mentioned that defence needs to be looked at more rigorously. Does that require the Royal Commission's terms of reference to be amended? Uh, I think the I think we can work with the current terms of reference. Um, I don't have a problem with that. I know some people are screaming about it and saying that the selection of people that have been chosen as commissioners is incorrect. But I don't think that's so much the case. I think what we need from the Royal Commission is for them to have an actual boldness and willingness to really get to the problem, the, the heart of the problem, and not just do what every other Royal Commission has done, is to have a bit of a look, have a bit of a poke around, and then write up a list of recommendations that don't do anything. Because what I fear with the Royal Commission is that it will follow the suit of, of every other Royal Commission that has been done, and, and they result in a a bunch of recommendations and then they just get set aside. What I, I think we need to do is have an ongoing permanent standing commission, I've always felt that, where people can be put in the, on top of the box, you know, in the chair and grilled and said, well, hang on a minute, you've allowed this to happen. Why did you let that happen? Or this was recommended in the Royal Commission. Why haven't you implemented that? 
and start getting to the bottom. Dr. Bernadette Boss wanted to do that when she was appointed the interim national commissioner. Okay. And people fought against that because they didn't trust her because she's worn the uniform and things like that. But I think if we really want to get into what's going on in defence, we really need to ask some hard questions. And also also have people who understand mm. the way in which the organisation operates because organisational structures work in weird and wonderful ways. If you're looking at it without an understanding of the organisational behaviour, organisational culture, you're going to find it a lot harder to come to terms with it, aren't you? Well, I haven't got a problem of of people like um, the currently appointed commissioner who's a deputy commissioner of of, um, New South Wales Police, I believe, Nick Caldas. You know, he's a trained investigator. And this is what I've been saying all along, is instead of leaving investigations into these really serious matters in the hands of people who are not trained, it really needs trained investigators who can have a thorough understanding of the applicable civil and military law to get to the bottom of this. And I hope that's what Nick Caldas will do in this Royal Commission. Mm-hmm. I think that the veteran community should stop barking about who's wrong or right for the job and just get on with asking the questions, putting the pressure onto those that are now being appointed. We've had enough delays. We've had enough people suicide. We need to now get on with the task. And I think one of the, the big things that they can do is is to put in place genuine mediation options, you know, where, where people can really sit down and, and talk freely about matters which are supposed to be secret, you know, things like these com- complaints where people can actually tell the truth to the the Royal Commission and say, look, this is what's happened to me. And I think Mm -hmm. most importantly, people should be made to to give their evidence under oath or affirmation so that we can be assured that they're actually going to be held accountable if they lie, and lie they do in a lot of cases. And there Mm -hmm. needs to be a reparation policy because currently one of the biggest problems with defence in any administration um, matters is the lack of corrective action policy and the lack of a reparation policy. So they can harm you, they can admit to being to harming you, but they've got no responsibility in, in fixing the problem. So I, I've got I've got soldiers, Tom, that you know they've gone through the process, they've won their their um, redress of grievance, it's a a process in defence. I've got one soldier that's won five redress of grievances. That's complex inquiries and still their situation had not changed because there's no corrective policy to ensure procedural fairness. Mm -hmm. And the policy states that they are to repair the damage to A, prevent it from happening to someone else in the future, but also to repair the damage to the, to the member in, in that it had never occurred. So to make, to make right the wrong. And currently that's where 
That's one of the biggest drivers of defence um, suicide risk and self-harm is sitting at the moment. And if you don't look inward to defence and look at these matters, then it will continue to um, bleed out into the, the veteran space. Okay. okay, that is a convenient uh, spot to uh, conclude our conversation for the moment. Uh, I've been talking to Dr Kay Danes, who's uh, an expert and very knowledgeable in the defence space and has been working hard to uh, raise awareness on the impact of the way in which defence operates on soldiers current and retired. Kay, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk again soon, no doubt.